Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality for part two of the NASA UAP meeting, public meeting. Uh, if it's anything like the part one, uh, uh, it's going to be boring. Uh, the only thing we got out of part one was, I, I just want to throw this out here for people who are, are listening to this later on, uh, rebroadcast that, that I'll put on Spotify later. Uh, if you didn't listen to part one, I have before warned that it was extremely boring. Uh, and you might not want to endure that. It was pretty much an endurance test of really you're not really learning much uh, if, other than I thought the most interesting comment was from Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of Arrow, who made the, uh, made the statement that uh, people who are interested in uh, uncover in, in the UF from the UFO community who are interested in uh, this topic and who, want the government to finally tell the truth that we're actually creating a stigma after his uh uh the hearing in the senate that he had uh, recently where he basically denied the, 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 the that there are any uh that there's any proof that there's an extraterrestrial presence here uh and then people the people who complained about that uh, are basically creating stigma so I, I found that interesting um and the people there's people that are there speaking and then there's people on this panel for, uh, with NASA that are asking questions uh, and basically this whole thing uh, according to a press release is it's a public me meeting that's uh, uh, it's its first it's it's an in independent study team uh, this meeting is on categorizing and evaluating da data of unidentified anomalous phenomena uh, <clears throat> so that's what this is all about NASA's studying UFOs. They only have a hundred thousand dollars, by the way, uh, for for their program, which is 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 not a lot of money when you consider uh, <laughs> a program in the in the government to study something. I mean, that's not a lot of money for NASA to study UFOs with, but that's all they have, I guess. Um. So, I, I guess I don't know what to expect here. I mean, the problem is, is that nobody's asking really the kind of hard questions that you know really should be getting asked. Uh, the people on this panel, it's all about more or less trying to uh, c come up with ways that they could uh, study uh, study study UAP uh, with techno with the technology that they have and, and, and trying to determine what these objects might be. And uh, I, I, the only good thing really about all of this is the fact that we have a, a government agency like NASA that's talking about UFOs. I mean, in the past, this was something that was unheard of. And uh, so that's the only good thing about it. But I mean, again, if I, I mean, it'd be different if you had people out there, regular citizens asking the hard kind of questions, you know, like to, to some of these people. But again, we're not going to we're not really getting that. Um, there, there is supposed to be a, a public comment section that's going to happen during this portion of this meeting. Uh, and we'll see what kind of questions they receive from the public. I, I don't know. Uh, it's all unknown still. Uh, I, I had no idea, actually, to tell you the truth, how boring this thing was going to be until <laughs> until it unfolded in front of our very eyes. But luckily, uh, it was made uh, exciting because I got a, a lot of comments uh, in the chat that I'm live streaming it from on YouTube here. Uh, and a lot of people were it was making me laugh. So that's 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 something good we could talk about. Uh but again, there is a good part to this, though—the fact that we are governments are talking about it, even though they're, they're they are treating us like a bunch of dum dums. They've always have, 
Uh, and they all, and they, and they will continue to. Uh, let's see if they're. I think they might be getting ready here. I'm going to turn turn the volume up and see what's going on. Nope, still playing music. Yeah, they've been treating us like a bunch of dumb dums, and they continue to treat us like a bunch of dumb dums. And you know, a lot of these people on this uh, that are talking here today, they don't they don't have the answers either. Because again, it's there's a secret control group that exists. They have the answers. Uh, basically, what it seems like it's happening here is like we're all going to learn together that extraterrestrials are real. Like even though that there's a group with here uh, that has the a absolute end all proof and it's keeping that from the public. So we, 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 we have to start from scratch and this is this meetings like this NASA having its own little study uh, that this is all part of that starting from scratch nonsense. Forget about all the history in the past. We're just starting to learn about this. We're just no noticing this stuff now. That's what it is. Um, so let's get ready here. Let's see it. Check it again. No, they're still playing, playing music. So, yeah, I, I, are we going to get anything interesting that's going to come uh, from this second segment? If it, if the first segment is is any indication, I would say no. I, I would say that we're about to be bored silly again, and we're not going to get anything of uh, nothing of interest will be said, at least not by uh, anybody from NASA or anybody that's sitting on this panel or any of the speakers that that step forward. I don't think we're going <coughs> to. Excuse me. I don't think we're going to get any uh, interesting revelations from from this at all. I mean, probably the only interesting thing might come from some of the public questions that I believe are supposed to be talked about during this during this uh, final segment. So we'll find out pretty soon. But uh, yeah, maybe. Okay, well, I'm, I'm already getting a lot of comments for this one. Everybody's here. Everybody, pretty much a lot of people who were at the previous one are here again to talk, uh, to listen in on this one. We'll find out what they say this time. No, they're still playing music. They're all sitting there. It looks like, uh, okay, here we go. series of short presentations by members and their thoughts on different aspects of our charge. And the format is we're gonna have them come up to the podium and speak. And I'm gonna ask each of the speakers then to take questions. It's actually the angle with this setup is you, you can see the people better from the podium than I can where it's hard to see people behind you. Um, I'm going to try to keep manage the time so as those questions you know, come to an end, I'll cut you off and bring up the next speaker. And uh, we'll move through the, the six topics and then we'll have some time at the end for some general discussion. Uh, the first speaker will be Dr. Nadia Drake talking about framing the issues of UAP. Maybe this will be interesting, Hope, hopefully. Hello, and welcome back from lunch, everybody, and a welcome to those of you watching us virtually. Um, I'm Nadia. I am a scientist by training. I'm also a science journalist now, and my job is to try and synthesize the information that we've learned so far and summarize the situation. So if you will, um, put together a framework for thinking about UAP. Now, I'm going to try and do this in a way that reflects the thoughts of the entire panel, although obviously we have a variety of opinions and ideas among us. Um, so I'd like to leave some time at the end for you to weigh in with disagreements or concurrences as needed. 
So first, a housekeeping matter. The definition of UAP changed during the seven months of our fact-finding process. UAP initially stood for unidentified aerial phenomena, with aerial referring to events occurring in Earth's atmosphere. That A is now defined as anomalous, which includes the space, air, and undersea domains. As a panel, I think we have decided to continue focusing our recommendations on the aerial domain, because that is where the majority of sightings and events have occurred, and also because we couldn't fully pivot to address the expanded scope of the new acronym. Beyond that, there are three points I want to make. The first is that for a number of reasons, UAP are obviously quite interesting, right? That is why we are here. Recently, many credible witnesses have reported seeing unidentified objects in the sky, some of which are behaving rather peculiarly. peculiarly. In some instances, these reports include corroborating data from various instruments, various sensors. The challenge that we have is that the data needed to explain these anomalous sightings often do not exist or are incomplete for generating a conclusive analysis. This includes eyewitness reports which on their own can be interesting and compelling, but often lack the information needed to make definitive conclusions about an object's provenance. We as a panel are thinking about the types of data that might add value to those reports and which could be useful on their own. As a corollary to date, in the refereed scientific literature, there is no conclusive evidence suggesting an extraterrestrial origin for UAP. Collecting more good data for the scientific community to review in a peer-reviewed context will be important for progress to, me, to be made here. The second point, UAP offer an excellent opportunity to demonstrate the power of the scientific method and of empirically addressing a question using a multidisciplinary approach. It is our job as a panel to make some recommendations about how NASA might go about tackling this topic scientifically, taking advantage of the agency's resources, global outreach, and reputation. Key points to keep in mind here are that science is, hypothe science is hypothesis driven. Scientists build confidence in their theories by relying on well-calibrated, well-collected data, using well-established methods, with rigorous evaluation and independent corroboration. In science, skepticism is not a bias, nor is it a bad word. It is not our job to define nature, but to study it in ways that let nature reveal itself to us, regardless of how exciting or disappointing that reality might be. And to that end, when we're thinking about making recommendations about how NASA can tackle this topic scientifically, I think it's important to remember that it's not NASA's job to replicate the efforts of the Department of Defense, but rather to consider approaches that are complementary to what the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office is doing. And so one of the questions that we as a panel, I think, need to center is, what can we recommend that NASA can do that the DOD cannot? Third point, to that end, what are we even looking for? How are we defining this problem? And how do the available data define what seems to be, to borrow a cliche, a very slender needle in a very big haystack. We heard a little bit about that today from Dr. Kirkpatrick, uh, who reported that there have been 800 events um, collected over about 27 years. And between 2 and 5% of those events display signatures that could be anomalous, defined as anything that is not readily understandable by the operator or the sensor. 
something that is doing something weird. Mr. Free and some of the experts on our panel have defined the background on which those events exist, the amount of stuff in the sky at any given time, like so. On average, FAA air traffic control handles 45,000 flights per day in US airspace with 5,400 aircraft in the sky at peak time. Worldwide, on average, there are about 1,600 weather balloon launches per day. In the US, there are at least 184 of those balloons launched, and that doesn't include private companies or research flights. There are about 1.69 million recreational or model small uncrewed aircraft systems, and an additional 880,000 drones are registered for commercial use. And these are not controlled by air traffic control, and they are not scheduled flights. So that's our challenge. So when making recommendations as a panel, I think we need to look at what kind of imprint we want to leave. What does the situation look like five years from now? What does it look like 10 years from now? Why are we making these recommendations? We heard a little bit about this this morning um, from both Mike and David, who noted that many discoveries in science are rooted in initially unexplained and bizarre phenomena. So by carefully scrutinizing the sky, or however we end up defining our search space, and by collaborating across disciplines, we are likely to learn new things about our planet. That's a fact. And that's the commensal science case we might wanna consider when making recommendations here. All right. Does anyone have, have thoughts? Questions, thoughts, comments? Colin. Carlin. Oh, yeah, I, I, I guess I wanna challenge a little bit. Um, we changed the A from aerial to anomalous. But I'm not sure we've precluded um, anything beyond the aerial for this panel, and, and so I, I've just raised that as a question for us, even though mostly what we've seen, and I think NASA's, NASA's mission space would be more the aerial. I agree with you, and I think that is a parameter that we need to define as a panel. Yeah, I'll just uh, quickly jump in and... and echo some remarks I made this morning that, yes, the A changed from aerial to anomalous, but it's also accurate to say that the preponderance of events are in the aerial domain. That being said, your panel scope has expanded outwards, and I think we'll hear a little bit um, from David later on that very subject. I mean, I think anomalous, people often think about it as going down, including ocean, but I think what's very relevant for NASA is going out. Right, and you know, looking at things in our solar system. And I think in some sense, um, I think oh, there's certain responsibilities in, you know, when we look at airspace, there's FAA responsibilities, there's DOD responsibilities. As you get further and further away from the earth, eventually it's all NASA. <laughs> Once you get out, you know, towards the, you know, most of, certainly much of the solar system and out, uh, to our galaxy that's all NASA. And uh, uh, when we start, uh, you know, thinking about things like, uh, you know, and this will be, you know, David will get to this, observations beyond the Earth's atmosphere. I think this change in language lets us also think about uh, outward, you know, further out in the solar system as well. Good, yeah. Other thoughts? Great. Did Thanks. I summarize everything totally accurately? Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Paula. 
Well, that was a little more exciting than the, the last few speakers. Could say that, at least. See that much, at least. All right. She said the word extraterrestrial. All right, thank you. So I thought that was the perfect uh, intro and segue by Dr. Drake for addressing why NASA. Uh, what what is or what are NASA's roles in UAP studies? So. NASA primarily is a science-driven agency. It's committed to exploring and understanding air and space. And this includes, as we were just discussing, the unknown, right? Whether that's the farthest reaches of the universe or right here on our home planet. In that light, NASA has over 60 years of experience measuring phenomena in air and space, in space um, and air that might be aeronautics, astronomy, as well as measuring other Earth phenomena, and this may include aquatic or atmospheric phenomena as well. And they do this using the unique vantage point of space. NASA's mission, data, and technical expertise in science and engineering may also help investigate and understand any of the reported phenomena. It makes sense to explore what new observations or measurements or studies might contribute to the understanding of reported phenomena. In that light, uh, Dr. Fox made this point this morning, there's a tremendous archive of NASA data. Uh, these are from satellites and other space-based and ground networks, as well as other assets. And these are freely and openly available to the public. NASA research as was mentioned, also supports a wide range of methods. This includes advanced data analysis, modeling, cutting edge computational and data visualization tools. And these are all useful for investigating unexplained observations, which may be crucial in studying these phenomena. Discoveries and results are all publicly available. And this can be something from the characterization of extraterrestrial solar planets or the hole in the ozone layer. And these are communicated publicly through many outlets through the agency. NASA also has a longstanding public trust. This is essential to communicate those findings about phenomena to the public and, as was mentioned several times, very important to destigmatize the reporting and raise awareness of cultural and social barriers to doing so. NASA has a unique strength in leveraging public and private partnerships that could result in new technologies that may be useful in observing and understanding reported phenomena. These partners could include other federal agencies. We've heard from the FAA today, as well as um, NOAA was identified. And they may collect data that could help to understand reported phenomena. In addition, NASA has a strong record of international collaboration, which could be beneficial to study any of these phenomena, as that may require global cooperation and data sharing. And then one thing that really um, strikes me is that new understanding of anomalous events really comes from when we bring communities together, interdisciplinary communities that would not necessarily collaborate. Um, and in, in my world, that might be biological and physical oceanographers. And I tell people to think a little more broadly, what if we brought together astronomers and earth scientists like we did on this panel? So um, that those interdisciplinary research teams, as well as citizen scientists, could explore historical and current 
NASA and partner data for events, or more importantly, for environmental conditions around the time of reported events. And this may help in our understanding. And then finally, um, given NASA's experience with long-term missions, long-term projects, and scientific focus, the agency is really well-equipped to handle the extensive and ongoing study of phenomena investigation that this likely requires. So hopefully that gave you some thoughts as to why NASA. I don't know if any of my fellow panelists agree or disagree. Discuss. <laughs> yes, Paula, thank you. So NASA has a, a great visibility in the community and not, and UAPs are obviously of great interest to a very diverse range of people. So can you speak a bit about the opportunity that this provides for NASA to expand um, you know, the knowledge of the, the understanding of the scientific method? Yes. Um, so it's a great question. Uh, there are multiple opportunities I think UAP present. Um, the first, as I mentioned, I think is to um, bring together interdisciplinary research teams and scientists and citizen scientists um, to really take a look at with a, an objective and perhaps unique eye um, what the NASA data archive actually means. Um, blend in the partnerships, a renewed partnership that's at the federal, the international, and the private level, right? Um, so I think there are any number of pathways that people could pursue that could be really advantageous for helping us to understand what's happening with any reported UAP. The questions? Thank you, Paula. This is Jolly Wright. Um, actually, my question and comment actually goes to both uh, you and Nadia. Uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick gave us a definition of anomalous that was that it was not readily understandable to the operator or the sensor. And from the NASA's perspective and for our panel, I think we have to consider a broader definition if we're talking about citizen science. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious of how we incorporate that, especially within the communication avenues that we were just discussing? It's a good question. Um, so um, not all data in an archive are user-friendly, right, right out of the, the gate. But uh, I think NASA does an excellent job making things like quick look or browse products available. You can go on the NASA website, you can look at different aspects of different things that the agency has in its mission to study. And I think um, if nothing else, uh, people have become a lot more in touch with their surroundings and their environment and the changes happening there. And so I think there's probably an opportunity uh, for people to maybe not become overnight experts in how to process satellite data and use it for basic research in a complex fashion. But there are ways to utilize those data to look at your environment if you think you've you know, seen something or you wish to report something. So communication, engagement in the public, I think is a really important part of the destigmatization for sure. Nadia, I don't know if you have anything to add. Um, I, I was I was struck by the phrase not readily understandable. I felt like that was actually doing a lot of work. Um, so I think for our purposes, we probably want to come up with a slightly more specific definition of what anomalous actually means. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just want to throw out there real Thanks. quick before Better we go to the next person here. 
that you know NASA people in NASA astronauts. There's people who have seen UFOs and have dealt with this all the time. And they they were there, there's a lot of stories like this. They've been put under order. They've been put under order like by somebody higher up to to keep it quiet. I mean that's the truth. So there's people in NASA that do know some things. Anyway, to the free Federica Bianco. And what the data that we should collect um, to really understand what maybe. Um, we've already heard in a few cases by a few people that NASA's role is to explore the universe through the scientific method. The application of the scientific method to discovery requires that the data meet some standards that um, allow the data-driven approach. And there are many standards that have been established in the scientific community over the years. I can mention one, for example, it's called the FAIR standard, where FAIR stands for findability, accessibility, um, interoperability, and reusability. Uh, the current status of the, of the data about UAPs does not meet these standards. The data collection is inconsistent, it's inhomogeneous, it's uncalibrated, the data are poorly documented and largely incomplete. Um, they're also not, not systematically retrievable, which poses a problem in automation of the analysis. So WAP could benefit from data science and machine learning methods, from artificial intelligence that is developing at a rapid pace, but machine learning and AI cannot be applied until the data meet the standards. Even to study a single event currently requires a significant lift in retrieving the data and the metadata that may or may not be available. And this lift is at the moment entirely person power, which means that it cannot be automated to apply machine learning methods. Organized repositories need to exist to enable the automation of retrieval of the data and the metadata, and this is a necessary premise to enable the systematic scientific approach to the study of UAPs. Anomaly detection is a well-developed, although notoriously hard discipline, and which has seen tremendous advances recently with data science and machine learning. Usually, uh, this means detecting rare and unusual signals in a complex that is noisy and rich with phenomena that we know. So there are two general approaches to anomaly detection in the scientific community. One is the following. If we know the signal that we expect, we can model it and we can simulate it and maybe inject it in our data. <laughs> so we can develop methods that are specific to finding those exact signals or signals that are similar to those. And we might be able to conceptualize signals coming from physical systems that respond to the laws of physics as we know them, but we cannot comprehensively produce all possible signals that could relate to or explain UAPs. So the alternative approach in detecting anomalies requires a thorough and deep understanding of what is normal and usual to tease out what is unusual and unlike the rest. These methods typically fall in the realm of what we call unsupervised machine learning. Uh, what is usual, maybe the balloons, the aircraft, and what a wealth of natural phenomena that we have heard of. And what is unusual, what is an anomaly, means anything in that is not consistent with the way in which those things look in our data. Once the anomalous signal is detected, it can be studied in more depth, either through the discovery data itself, but that may not be sufficient. So then we may need to collect additional data for, to study these, um, these anomalies. And this is something that in astrophysics we typically refer to as follow-up data. 
This can be very hard, especially if the phenomena that are anomalous are also ephemeral in time. So you have to promptly respond to the detection and set up follow-up observations. It's an extremely hard game, but it's something that is seeing a large development in astrophysics in recent years with the study of anomalous detections in the universe. This approach relies entirely on a comprehensive and systematic organization of the data, which is paramount, and on a deep understanding of all the data that is actually usual and known. The data that we might want to collect ideally will be collected in a multi-sensor and multi-platform and multi-site manner. Eyewitnesses reports, I want to elevate what Dr. Drake said, cannot ascertain the nature of UAPs. However, they should be considered because they may contain important information, for example, persistent sighting locations or seasonality, but they only really work if joined with quantitative data um, collected by sensors, as well as biophysical and psychophysical assessments of the witness and the impact that the experience has on them to really reveal the nature of UAPs. Um, You've heard it from, a num from my colleagues a number of times. Uh, the data needs to be collected by sensors. They need to be calibrated or calibratable. So we need to collect not only the data, images, sounds, spectral characterization of what we see, but metadata, the sensor type, the brand, the brand of the sensor, the noise characteristics, time of the acquisition, instrument sensitivity, as well as information about the um, circumstances of the data collection, for example, temperature or the location uh, or the conditions in which the, sen the sensor is at the time of collecting the data. The data should be collected simultaneously by different platforms, ideally, ideally in different locations in a multi-sensor system. So some of the data that we may want to collect are images, but also temperature, sound recording, spectral data emissivity that tells you the color in a very fine grid. Um, as well as um, other, as well as uh, monitoring the motion of objects, which has been very important to identify what we have seen as UAPs that have been reported. Much of this certainly can be achieved with professional-grade infrastructure, and both new and existing infrastructure uh, to do that such as astrophysical and geographical observatories, both on the ground and satellites. Uh, some modern observatories in particular are designed for the detection of time anomalies specifically, as well as for the detection of objects that move rapidly in space, near-Earth objects, asteroids, meteors, etc. So those could be leveraged for the study of UAPs. There is also some effort in, uh, ongoing in the developing of facilities that are specifically to detect, uh, designed to detect UAPs, and many of those comply with the characteristics that I just described. This level of information, though, can also be obtained by the public. Uh, we could crowdsource the data collection if a platform to crowdsource uh, exists that supports the collection of data and metadata and the transmission of data and metadata. And we think that NASA might be able to play an important role in the development of this platform. Um, to echo what uh, Dr. Bontempi said, NASA has a wealth of experience in coordinating scientific studies, efforts across discipline and domains, serving as a bridge between communities in the interdisciplinary studies and studies across um, different countries. All of these can be supported uh, all of these can be leveraged uh, to support the work of uh, the other agencies in the identification and, exp and explaining, explaining UAPs. Uh, NASA also has a really uh, important experience in data curation. 
we have heard about the sophistication of the analysis of the data that NASA provides, of the um, sophistication of the calibration that the data that NASA shares um, uh, arrives to. We have heard about the open data policy um, that NASA data goes under. Furthermore, NASA has recently spearheaded an effort to review NASA and NASA partner archival data to prepare them for machine learning and AI so that data can be served to the community directly and ready to apply AI methods on it. This is an important experience that could be leveraged in the study of UAPs. However, we do want to emphasize that the current status of the UAP data will make this lift really hard compared to even what is being done by NASA for astrophysical data. And finally, I wanted to emphasize what my colleague said. NASA has a great visibility. UAPs are of great, power, of great public interest. And this could be an opportunity to really increase the reach of science, help people understand the scientific process, and maybe diversify the scientific community by attracting new talent uh, into the scientific community uh, due to the visibility of the problem. And I think that's all of my remarks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Questions? Do you want to go, Richie? So uh, on the whole crowdsourcing front and getting uh, reports from citizen scientists, uh, what do you think along those lines? Is it uh, providing a set of guidelines for how you report? Is it uh, open sourcing a set of applications for cell phones to be able to pull in a lot of the right metadata? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, so um, I think guidance would uh, just a set of guidance um, of um, best practices, et cetera, would just not be sufficient. I think what needs to be provided is a platform. Uh, you mentioned cell phones. Cell phones have been used for um, crowdsourcing, the study and detection of a number of things in astrophysics, um, in space science. So that can definitely be done. Um, the issue, I think, is going to be to make sure that this platform is um, that this platform reaches a large enough community to really have a crowd to source the problem and coordination. Something that this could achieve, for example, is uh, the follow-up that I mentioned earlier, right? So we need this community that would use um, the crowdsourcing facilities to be connected so that if something is cited by one person, uh, that message can go across and a broader community can point their sensors um, to the problem, to the sighting. And uh, the data has to be transmitted to the, that has to be transmitted to a place that can centralize it and curate it. Yeah, please feel free to say this is a bad idea. But if you thought about synthetic data, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, given the fact we don't have enough quality data yeah. to train a net, a neural net, if we were to generate synthetic data based on the information we do have, and then filling out the other characteristics as we might guess, yeah. does that then help us train something to iterate? in AI to be able to find other correlations within data as we get it. 
So we do it all the time in data science, right? We do generate data sets where the data sets are sparse or scarce and we cannot train machine learning models. It's a risky business because in the data that we generate, we embed the bias that we have. So we embed our thinking about the data, the way in which we think the data looks and the way in which they think the anomalies look. So particularly in anomaly detection, it is a very um, difficult thing to do um, to try to make sure that you don't bias your models to what so you know. I, I want to come back to this topic of anomaly discussion in our general discussion. We're yeah. sort of starting to run a little late. So I want to cut off questions now, but we do have a little time later at the end. So uh, don't forget, don't forget your questions, bring them up again in discussion and we'll, we'll talk more, more later. Great. So uh, uh, David's our next speaker. All right, good afternoon. My name is David Grinspoon. I'm a planetary scientist and astrobiologist, and I'm gonna talk for uh, just a couple of minutes about um, how observations beyond Earth are relevant to um, our uh, study of UAPs. Um, many of NASA's missions are, at least in part, focused on answering the question of whether life exists beyond Earth. Astrobiology is the study of the origin, evolution, distribution, and future of life in the universe. Uh, as part of this, we consider how to search for biosignatures, observations we can make of other planets which may, might betray the presence of life. So we look for things like uh, anomalous gases in the atmospheres of planets and other anomalies which may possibly reveal the presence of life. When we discover such an anomaly, we don't conclude that we've discovered life. We seek more data to understand what we're seeing, and often this leads to other new discoveries. Similarly, we can talk about looking for technosignatures, observations we can make which might reveal the presence of technological activity somewhere else. NASA is also supporting some research studying technosignatures. While there is at present no evidence we're aware of suggesting an extraterrestrial source for UAPs, these existing NASA programs are relevant to the question of UAPs in at least two ways. First, researchers in astrobiology and SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, have focused for many years on techniques and methods for identifying anomalous signatures and determining if they have mundane natural explanations as opposed to revealing unknown biological or even technological activity. The SETI community has expertise and methodologies for determining whether a potential technosignature is in fact a natural phenomenon or misinterpreted terrestrial technology. When a possible technosignature is observed, we ask, is it a real signal? Is it a known or unknown natural phenomena? Must it be technological? Uh, is it known terrestrial technology? So these scientific communities have relevant experience in determining and communicating about whether observations which first appear to reveal extraordinary evidence actually justify making extraordinary claims. Second, if we do acknowledge an extraterrestrial source, however unlikely, as one possibility for UAPs, then these objects must have traveled through the solar system to get here. Uh, within 
the scientific community, there's a widespread, but by no means universal belief that there are extraterrestrial civilizations. And we have a well-developed rationale. Uh, and there's a lot of literature for discussing this, which I, I won't go into now uh, in the interest of brevity, but it has to do with the vast numbers of exoplanets and the, the time scales of evolution and the possibility of convergent evolution on different planets leading to somewhat similar outcomes. And it's a fascinating subject, but uh, the, the relevant point here is that the same rationale which support, supports the idea that extraterrestrial civilizations may exist and may be detectable also supports the idea that finding extraterrestrial artifacts in our own solar system is at least plausible. NASA is the lead agency for solar system exploration. It already has an active program of detecting objects in our solar neighborhood using both ground-based and space-based facilities. And it could leverage those capabilities to search for objects in space with anomalous motion, anomalous trajectories, uh, unusual light curves, uh, anomalous spectral signatures, or other characteristics. Uh, most of the solar system has not been searched for artifacts or anomalies, and these modest data analysis efforts could potentially be applied to existing and planned planetary missions. Uh, the galaxy does not stop at the edge of the solar system, and the solar system does not stop at the top of the Earth's atmosphere. It's all a continuum of possibilities worthy of investigation. If NASA applies the same rigorous methodology toward UAPs that it applies to the study of possible life elsewhere, then we stand to learn something new and interesting, whatever the ultimate explanation is of those phenomena. And that's all I wanted to say right now. We have time for uh, one or two comments or questions or thoughts. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. You know, it struck me while you were speaking um, about biosignatures that we do a lot of that type of analysis, right, in our home planet in, in different capacities. And so it's more of a comment, but I wondered your thoughts on, you know, bringing together those communities that might not work together and whether that would aid in, you know, um, not only establishing what's normal, but, you know, enabling the detection or maybe the understanding explanation of a UAP if reported? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the focus of my talk was, was observations elsewhere. But in fact, most of what the field of astrobiology has to study is here on Earth, because after all, it's our one example of an inhabited planet, and it's a little bit easier to get to to make observations. So yes, uh, any, any insights you have uh, in, in that area or any, any suggestions for uh, for uh, collaboration between those communities uh, would, be, would be very valuable. So of course, uh, NASA hasn't been researching the technosignature field for very long, and there's been a stigma with technosignatures for many decades. Are there any lessons learned we can impose from the technosignature and the study community to the UAP and solar system studies? That's a really, Good question. Um, I guess the, the immediate thought it sparks in me is that, um, yeah, technosignatures were kind of tr treated, uh, it kept at arm's length for a long time by NASA because of stigma um, and ultimately uh, can't be kept 
away forever if you're if you are an agency curiosity driven trying to understand the whole universe you have to move beyond stigmas and just try to honestly look at whatever evidence there is and so i think in that broad sense the same lesson ought to apply to uaps um as someone who has been working in astrobiology and data sciences for some time now um, it strikes me uh, when both Dr. Bianco and you talked that the differences that seem to me between biosignatures and te technosignatures fields and the UAP field, again, relies on the data. So biosignatures and technosignatures, they have uh, very uh, well-standardized data sets. They have collect been collecting data sets for some time. Um, and they are able to apply machine learning, artificial intelligence algorithms, while it's a totally different question with the UAPs in how we can apply artificial intelligence here. So again, just like Dr. Avianca, how she said, uh, it's about uh, data standardization. So um, I hope that the UAP field will learn how to work with the data from the biosignatures and technosignatures fields. So. Yeah, that's a good point. The one, the one uh, point I'd push back on a little bit is whether uh, technosignatures has been has a lot of data in that sense. It, the the one part of technosignatures, which is looking for signals from radio and optical and that sort of thing that's been you know associated with SETI for a long time. You're right, there's a lot of data there that we've been collecting. But the term technosignatures is sort of newly being adopted. And it, uh, in a way, it reminds me of the distinction we heard um, from the FAA about a cooperative and you know non-cooperative. Uh, that, that with technosignatures, we're looking um, there's more of an emphasis on finding um, technology that is not necessarily intended to signal us, but just sort of uh, doing what technology does and finding ways to, you know, so it's not looking for signals as much. And in that domain, we have not necessarily been collecting information for that long. But but your, your point is well taken that there are lessons learned from uh, certainly the astrobiology and the, the sort of classical SETI field where we've had a lot of data and we could uh, look at how that is analyzed and try to collect the data for UAPs that will be amenable to that same sort of analysis. Great, thank you. Uh, Carlin's next. Yeah, that guy, I'll tell you what, he thinks he's real smart, real clever, thinks he knows what he's talking about. Uh, never Hello, read a everybody. book probably on UFOs in his life. I'm an aerospace engineer. You know, it really struck me when Dr. Drake opened up this afternoon and talked about this really small needle in a really big haystack that we're looking for. And I'm going to talk to you about reporting, a theme that we've heard a lot. How can we make that haystack smaller and that needle bigger? So reporting of UAP events has received a lot of attention recently, but I think that there are still barriers for people to report. How or where should they report? Will someone take action on their report? Will the reporter be believed? or will they be shamed? We've heard over shamed. the course of our fact finding that many scientists and aviators consider the study of UAPs to be fringe at best. So this suggests there's a significant negative stigma associated with reporting or even researching such phenomena. That said, by encouraging military aviators to disclose anomalies that they've seen or detected, the Department of Defense is receiving many more reports. I think in the time that we've been looking at this topic, growing from an ODII report that was something like 500 to I think this morning we heard something like 800 now, so that's accelerating. 
And DOD will soon also mandate, if not already, reporting by pilots, which will even grow that set. I would propose to this panel that NASA can help make it safer for researchers to explore data in the civil airspace domain simply by starting that work internally. NASA could look at how civil anomaly data is shared, study how to incentivize reporting, assess the possibility of crowdsourcing data, which I think we've heard a bit about this afternoon, or sponsor and participate in conferences on UAP detection. Our team has really only seen, I'd say, a few unclassified images of UAP, which lack the contextual data that's needed to understand their true nature. And I believe we've heard a single firsthand account from a former military aviator. So one of my colleagues, Josh, has an example to show just why it would be important for NASA to also help shape how the data and information is reported. But before I turn the mic over to Josh, I wanna make a recommendation to my fellow panelists that we consider advising NASA to more fully assess the cultural and social barriers to studying and reporting UAP and for NASA to implement a plan to leverage its brand image to start removing these obstacles. That. You just want to go up and then we'll, we'll take discussion. Wow, I don't know what that was all so about. That was slide deck if you want. She didn't provide anything. <laughs> so it's not it's not the charge of our panel to evaluate UAP evidence. Uh, but part of our statement of task is to assess the scientific analysis techniques uh, that are available. You don't have to start it just yet. And the um, and how we might use them to determine physical constraints on UAP. Uh, you know, the UAP reports with the most detailed contextual information are the ones from the Navy aviators. Uh, and they're using a com combination of, um, of ranging and uh, infrared imaging information. And for these cases, we can directly calculate critical parameters of a UAP, uh, such as altitude and velocity, under certain assumptions. Uh, and it's, you know, the main point I want to make here is that there, this multi-sensor approach is absolutely critical to um, charting a path forward for UAP investigations, and that pertains to NASA as well. So I'm going to provide one example here just to illustrate the crucial role of science and scientific analysis. Um, and the role of scientific analysis to avoid misinterpretation in some sense. Um, next build. Just hit space. Yeah, okay, so this is, um, this video was recorded by um, pilots deployed from the aircraft carrier USS Theodore Roosevelt in 2015. Uh, the example has been given the nickname Go Fast because it gives an impression of an object moving very rapidly against the ocean surface. And, uh, you know, the question is, is this impression correct? And, uh, you know, if not, what can we say quantitatively about what that object is doing in uh, kind of Earth-centered coordinate system? Uh, fortunately, the information needed to determine the altitude and velocity of this object is contained on the display. So go ahead and next. And uh, this includes the uh, elevation angle of the camera. Um, 
the uh, azimuth angle of the camera, the target range in nautical miles, aircraft altitude, uh, the time reference in seconds, indicated airspeed in knots. Um, you know, this information in this video in particular has been discussed quite a bit on the, on the web. Um, so let's begin with the object altitude. Next, please. So knowing the jet's altitude and the bearing uh, to the target, we can apply basic trigonometry to figure out where that object is in altitude space. And it uh, turns out to be, you know, provided the range information is accurate, which uh, can have some uncertainties associated with it, but the object appears to be at about 13,000 feet. An important aspect of this here is that it's sort of midway between the, uh, the jet and the ocean. Uh, so it's the ocean that looks like it's right behind it is actually 4.2 miles away. And this is our first indication that some or most of the motion that we observe, the apparent motion of the object, uh, is in fact due to the rapid motion of the sensing platform, which is about 430 miles per hour in this case. Uh, but we don't have to guess about this. So we have enough information on this display to actually reconstruct um, the encounter. Go to the next slide, please. And uh, so this is what this is. This is using additional information on the screen, including the time axis. And um, so we know that this aircraft is banking about 15 degrees left, and you can compute through a simple calculator the radius, approximate radius of curvature of the flight. And um, you, the bottom line is, I won't go into detail here, but if you can get the bearing and range to the target at two locations with known separation in time, you can figure out how far it moved. And in this case, this object moved about 390 meters um, in 22 seconds. And that corresponds to a velocity of just 40 miles per hour. And so that's a velocity that's consistent with wind speeds at 13,000 feet. So it's not our task to conjecture what this object is, um, but it's an example that illustrates the type of data needed to determine critical parameters that will help us identify such ob objects going forward. Um, in addition to the importance of quantitative analysis, this example also serves to illustrate the kind of cognitive bias we have to contend with uh, for UAPs recorded from unfamiliar perspectives. And uh, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick showed another example of that. This is um, this is a parallax effect case. <coughs> Thank you. Wow. <clears throat> Any questions? Thanks. Um, actually, before we have questions, this is actually a good moment. Uh, Sean had a, wanted to comment on his one of the questions. If we we bring Sean up and then yeah. take questions for everybody. Sean Kirkpatrick again. Maybe he's going to tell us we're we're we're, we're bl blameless for more creating stigma the UFO community. Thanks. That was that was actually very helpful for everyone. I'm sure. Um, just one piece of clarification on the video that we showed. The second one that was the new newly released one had the three uh, aircraft in it. Uh, the question was asked about if it was a stabilized background against which the jitter was showing. I I, I am not 100% certain of that answer. It might just be a bunch of dust on that sensor. But let me go back and get you a more fulsome answer. It is either stabilized background or it's just garbage. But in either event, the three aircraft are um, jittering because of the platform. But that's another example of exactly what you're saying, right? It's the perception of the, of the operator who thinks it's doing something else when it's actually just your own camera. 
Yeah, if I could just, Sean, in your event, it seemed to me that the, what you mean by jitter in this case is the the plane is actually making motions that are causing a parallax. So it's actually more than that. Uh, so the plane will move, and that'll cause the parallax that you just showed. But the sensor itself, the a lot of these cameras are in gimbals. For those of you not certain what a gimbal is, it's the thing that your, your cameras sit on, your telescopes sit on, it moves it around in, in different directions. Uh, those can sometimes be stabilized, in which case they, they uh, damp out the motion of the platform. And in other cases, they're not, and they, they jump around. And so what you're actually seeing in that video is what we call jitter of the sensor against the platform. So the platform's moving and the sensor is moving. It's not a stabilized against the target. But the, once it's collected, sometimes in processing, the background is stabilized frame to frame, just like some of those TikTok videos you see, right? Same idea. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here. I think uh, make a couple of comments to just follow up on what uh, Josh said in my experience of flying, you know, over 15,000 hours, 30 something years uh, in airplanes and, and both in space. And the environment that we fly in, space or, you know, an atmospheric flight, very, very conducive to optical illusions. So I get it why these pilots would look at that go fast video and think it was going really, really fast. Um, I remember one time I was flying in the warning areas off of uh, Virginia Beach military operating area there. And my Rio thought, the guy that sits in the back of the Tomcat, was convinced we flew by a UFO. So I didn't see it. We turned around. We went to go look at it. It turns out it was Bart Simpson, a balloon. <laughs> you know, oftentimes in space, I would see things and I was like, oh, that's really not behaving like it should. It's not, it doesn't have the trajectory of a satellite or a planet on the back of the star field. And every single time, when I would look at it long enough, I would realize that it was atmospheric lensing. It was the fact that what, what I was looking at was actually flying behind the atmosphere. And because of variations in the atmosphere, it made the trajectory look like it wasn't going in a straight line. It was going like this and it would go like that and it would turn in the other direction. Always was always the case. My brother, uh, Mark Kelly, a uh, former NASA astronaut and uh, also now a U.S. senator, I was with him for dinner last night and he shared a story with me again that he had shared years ago but i had kind of forgotten about it and i think it's worth sharing and that that is when he was the commander of sds 124 i think it was in 2008 they were getting ready to close the payload bay doors of the spaceship and before they do that you got to make sure nothing interferes with the doors because if the doors don't close properly the space shuttle can't re-enter the atmosphere it would come apart it's part of the structural integrity of the vehicle so they see something in the payload bay and they thought it was a tool, maybe a bolt. They couldn't quite figure it out. They were potentially going to have to go and do a spacewalk to retrieve it. But before they did that, my brother grabbed a camera. They took a picture of it. And when they blew up the picture, they realized that this is not a bolt or a tool in the payload bay. It was actually the International Space Station that was 80 miles away. I mean, that's 
just a really good example of how this environment we operate in is so, so conducive to optical illusions. Oftentimes, guys fly into the water. And there are cases where, you know, pilots have rendezvoused on a buoy because they thought that was their wingman. It's just very, very um, challenging environment to work in, especially at night. And in my experience, the sensors kind of have the same issues as the, you know, the people's eyeballs. So per what Scott just said, I think we need to take it as an action to investigate unidentified animated phenomena to go after Bart Simpson. I, I think what Josh and Scott said is very, very helpful and shows why we need multiple sources of data. Were there radar hits? Were there other sightings? Unless we can look at this from a holistic perspective, it's very difficult to draw conclusions. And relative to stigma, and I appreciate the reports that our colleagues gave, I think there's plenty of stigma right here in this building. And I'm sure, Dan, you suffered from it uh, at times. And I just want to commend Administrator, although he's always be Senator Nelson to me, for his leadership and candidly courage in getting the asset to tackle this issue. And as we look at what Sean had articulated, that what he wants NASA to do, as we look at the recommendations for reporting and how we need to collate that reporting, I'm very concerned that this could be effectively done on an ad hoc basis. And I've been a part of far too many panels and studies that end up sitting on the shelf. I don't want this to be one of those exercises. And we can discuss this further, but I would call for and recommend a permanent office within NASA to support this activity, albeit likely a modest one, but to collate this information, to collate that data, to archive the information, and act as the open, forward-facing counterpart to Sean and AARO. I think then we could continue and actually accomplish the reporting, the stigma issues that have been raised, and we could do so in a relatively affordable fashion. Uh, because again, I don't want all of our work to end up being in vain. So now uh, Jen's going to turn to our chart, and uh, and uh, you know, as a panel, when we were convened with a set of questions that we were charged to address, we've been addressing them through the topics we've talked about and through things as we've been thinking this through, but. We're going to organize the next part of the discussion with Jen presenting these things. And this is also a chance to get into some of the discussion phase because we can look at each of these questions as the topics that we make, we want to make sure we address as part of the report. Jen. Uh, thanks, David. And I want to thank the panelists all for all of your work, um, all of the knowledge that I've gained from, from each of you through this time. Um, I took it upon myself in preparing for today's meeting to draft a statement that answers the eight questions uh, that we were provided um, at the beginning of the uh, last summer when the, the panel was, was created. Um, so I'm going to read the question out loud. I'm going to read my statement and I'm going to pause and let you think and reflect. And if there's Remember, this isn't all of the details associated with each of these answers, right? This is to be a kind of high level, make sure we've got the major points there. Um, and, and this is an initial take <laughs> for, for these answers. So the first question goes, 
what types of scientific data currently collected and archived by NASA or other civilian government entities should be synthesized and analyzed prior uh, to potentially shed light on the nature and origins of UAP? So the panel reviewed data sources, analytic tools, data architectures from NASA, NOAA, FAA, Commerce, and others. Um, the data that we uh, recognized were not collected for the purpose of identifying UAP, which leaves bias in the data that was collected. Um, even though there is an immense amount of data available, it is hard to access and the sensors that were used were not well calibrated for um, identifying anomalous phenomena. No questions. Moving forward. Question number two, I kind of feel like Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. what, what types of scientific data currently collected and held by nonprofits and companies should be synthesized and analyzed to potentially shed light on the nature and origins of UAP? Many organizations exist to track sightings of anomalous phenomena in the Earth's atmosphere, both nonprofit, for-profit, and otherwise. The study panel concluded that much of the inputs collected by these organizations are not considered scientific data in nature and that they do not contain unbiased information, they're not repeatable, and that they typically come with uh, eyewitness accounts, which we've heard even today um, that there's uh, hesitations with using only eyewitness accounts to recognize <laughs> or identify UAP. Um, to the point about commercial or companies, uh, there are a lot of space companies that um, some lobbied hard to get in to present to us. Uh, they have troves of data, but they're collected for a variety of different purposes than the purpose of UAP. And those systems, while they are well calibrated, are only one source of many that could be used. Um, and questions, comments, concerns? Yes, Carly. I'll, I'll bite on that one, Jen. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think your answer is correct as to what we've seen, but where I would go is if we made a recommendation to NASA that, you know, we're really asking them to build a roadmap and we haven't done a robust cataloging. We, we've looked at sources, mentioned sources that we think might be relevant, but perhaps a more robust effort cataloging would be a good modest start. That's good. I, I I will only in slight defense of trying to answer the exact question as posed <laughs> to the panel rather than trying to add recommendations at this point. But yes, point well taken. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the data sets that we just learned about, you know, heard more about today and thinking about sort of calibrating things is the FAA data on anomalous, uh, you know, tracking events, right? And I think this is something where if we had, you know, some... Uh, Imaging software, people, you know, self, citizen scientists with cell phone cameras identify some event that looks interesting. One of the places you'd like to be able to turn is the FAA data. And having, um, you know, if there is to go back to, you know, having a NASA a responsibility for data, NASA might, you know, has a lot of experience in serving as a clearinghouse for data from across the government for civilian data. 
right? This is something we do in lots of different areas. And I, I think there are some opportunities with data sets there. And I think the, the radar data is one that comes to mind as one we don't want to forget about as an available data set. Yeah, absolutely. Um, question three, uh, I think goes more towards the recommendations of what other types of scientific data should be collected uh, by NASA to enhance the potential for developing an understanding of the nature and origins of UAP. So we've heard um, now from two of the panelists on some of the information that should be collected um, or the way that some of that data should be organized in a manner to make it available for people to uh, analyze that information. Um, and the only other thoughts that I had uh, here was, was really recognizing the difference in um, the sensor thresholds, right? So we can't always tune a sensor all the way to the resolution that we might need or we might want. Um, and, and as we collect that data to recognize for the scientists that are doing um, those analyses, to the bounds of each of the systems that they're, that they're using. You know, what strikes me on that one, um, when you were reading the, the answer, the proposed answer, was um, what may be new, may be something that's new to NASA in the sense of like a time series, mm -hmm. so we can know what's normal, so we can perhaps identify what's not normal or anomalous, right? So I'm not sure to what extent um, it's like the most unsexy Thing to sell on the face of the planet, right, is making consistent long-term observations. But I think that the agency may be set up to do just that for mm -hmm. multiple reasons, right? Yeah. Persistent yeah. data collection. The agency does that in a lot of cases for astrophysical purposes. So the infrastructure, of course, you know, pointing up and pointing at a different distance, but the infrastructure for collecting this kind of data, organizing mm -hmm. and keeping it, and that does exist. Yeah. And uh, there are in their defense, a lot of satellite companies um, that are doing that persistent collection as well. Okay. Uh, question four, which scientific analysis techniques currently in production could be employed to assess the nature and origins of UAP? Which types of analysis techniques should be developed? So this is a two part with what exists today and what should be. So we're looking also at recommendations. Um, based on the information provided by the presenters to the panel, there are very few credible analysis techni techniques available uh, that, that currently exist um, to assess the nature and origins of UAP. Uh, the onset of artificial intelligence and automated analysis techniques give promise to being able to do that in the future. Um, I wanted to add something to that perhaps, which is that really to design the analysis, you need to know what the data looks like, right? Yes. So, um, you know, we can't really say what kind of analysis should be uh, created on the hypothetical data that we're recommending should be collected in a, you know, in some, you know, right. somewhat specified fashion. If it's all hypothetical and we want right. to collect all of this data and we know what format it's going to be in, we can design analysis techniques around it. And at that point, it's likely that there are analysis techniques that are that already exist. There Absolutely. There's a wealth of anomaly detection work. Mm -hmm. We just don't know which one will be most suitable because the data as it should be doesn't exist yet. Correct. 
You said exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, and that, that's what I was getting at with my point. Not that those analysis techniques don't exist in the scientific community, just that they're not being applied to this problem set right now, and it's hard to apply them when we don't have the, the known data of what would go into those. David? Yeah, I, I think something we want to stress here is the importance of uniform data yes. and the way it's collected, because particularly when you're looking for outliers, if you have data coming from many different observing techniques, right, and just having a uniform set of cameras, <laughs> a uniform set of detectors, so you understand and characterize them, right? Because this is a, a needle in the haystack problem. And, you know, every camera that I mean, I'd mentioned in the uh, opening se session, ghosting and optics. Yes. Now that's gonna be different in every different detector, every different, right? And you, um, before we get to the analysis techniques, we want to make sure we design the data collection so that the analysis techniques can effectively be used on it. Right. David, yeah, can I take a slight issue with that, which is it sounds like you're implying that you need a single way of collecting the data. I'd argue it's really you need to understand the various ways in which you're collecting the data and you're able to cross calibrate across those different approaches. Because uh, I seriously doubt that there is a single detector. I, I, I think a handful of ways so that you're yeah. um, well characterized. Things, things need to be well characterized to be yeah. useful, I guess is the, the way I would state it. And uh, it takes time and, and energy to well characterize things. So that, that's, that's, I think, the challenge. So following up on both your points, I think it's where we can actually apply artificial intelligence. So we cannot apply artificial intelligence on the current data, but we can apply artificial intelligence in a way that we can design characteristics for the data that we need and how we can collect the data that we need. So This is probably more of a frustration than anything else, so I don't know how helpful it'll be, but I think we're not looking for a needle in a haystack. We're looking for anomaly in haystack. We don't even know that we're looking for a needle. That it's just a discolored I, piece of hay. Well, <laughs> I'm from Montana, so I love good hay analogy. Oh boy. I don't know what the phenomenology is that we're looking for. We say anomalous. Again, this question earlier, what does that mean? Anomalous acceleration? Like I think as we try to look at the data, we're starting from an almost impossible position when if we don't know what we're looking for, is it a radiation signatures, is it something electromagnetic, is it something like that is why this is so challenging and frustrating to me that we're talking about monitoring something that we don't even know what we're supposed to monitor. And let me just offer, Josh, before you jump in, the, the scientific process of hypothesis-driven research, right, of that while we don't know all of the possible outcomes in the entire world, we can ask very specific questions and go about it in a very scientific process to understand. So you're right, we don't know exactly what we're looking for, but we know hotspots, as we've seen from both FAA and Arrow. Um, we do know some of those conditions that we might be looking for. So if you start with kind of what you know, or, or places to start to go and look, and you start with the data that we have available to us, we might start be, being able to untangle the chicken and egg problem. Jen, what is the phenomena that we're looking for? So we've heard them from Sean. 
<laughs> I would pull up Sean's chart, but I can't quickly do that. Um, of the criteria that he said on the trends, I use the word criteria, he said trends, of six or seven um, uh, phenomena, I guess, of specific size or within a specific motion range. Um, and it's something different than what we've seen before, something we don't recognize. And so when you go to look for something that you don't recognize, it, it, it can be pretty easy and that we've fooled ourselves today and even watching some of these videos of what's going on. Um, but when you're able to corroborate that with three or four other sources, it starts to make sense, right? So something that looks like magic to the naked eye or to that camera and that sensor um, isn't once you understand all of the effects of what was going on in the surrounding environment. So I've got a question. Can we, because um, I got the same frustration you do, right? It's, it's regardless of um, uh, what you're looking for, if you don't know what it is, whether you're using AI or match filtering techniques, you can't find it, right? You can't find it. So because the question I have is, can we use social media, that kind of thing as a way of queuing um, to know where something's happening? Because we know Google searches can lead you to better understand where um, outbreaks happen, right? Disease outbreaks. Can you use similar type of inflation of data to start saying, well, something's going on here. Let's start queuing sensors. In that area, that requires some real-time capability, but is that something we can think about? Can I object to that just a bit? Uh, I, you can find things that you don't know how they look. Okay. There, there is a, a lot of the algorithms in anomaly detection are really based on let's know, let's find out how what we know looks like, so that anything that doesn't look like that can be identified and spotted, and then we can think whether That's or not right. we understand That's it, right? right? And so I think the point about the homogeneous detectors really is about that. We need to have a solid understanding of the normal to detect the anomalies with the outlier, because we sometimes perhaps more often call them in, in, in science, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to be cautious of time. We were supposed to end this about 10 minutes ago. Right, so but this is drifted into We've, discussion, but I think we're doing discussion. So do you have any last topic you want to hit? If not, then we'll just open up to general discussion. I have four more questions that we're technically supposed to answer. All right, let's do one. <laughs> we can do four questions in two minutes, right? Okay, speed round. Fast. In considering all of the factors above, what basic physical constraints can be placed on the nature and origins of UAP. Mike, would you like to take this question? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Got it. Um, I, uh, in my, my notes to answer this, knew that Sean had presented some trends. So I, I used that kind of as the basis for um, what basic physical constraints could be available. Um, and also the Josh's presentation that he just presented of, we know some of these are still in the realm of understanding. We just haven't applied basic physics to understand what's there, what we have. Uh, question six, what civilian airspace data related to UAPs have been collected by government agencies and are available for analysis to A, inform efforts to better understand the nature and origins of UAPs, and B, determine the risk of UAPs to the national airspace. Um, so we saw some of this in, I'm going to use examples from today to kind of move quickly. Um, some of this in Mike Free's presentation, uh, talking about the the air risks, right, that FAA is, is always looking out for. Um, we know um, 
by altitude and by sensor and curvature of the earth and line of sight and as you get higher that you can see more, right? So we have a lot of civilian airspace data that can start to understand um, the nor nature and origins of the UAP and determining the risk um, is based on how much you know, right? So you think about, I, I, I go straight to space and I think about satellites and one um, tiny piece of space debris can destroy an entire satellite because they're moving really, really fast in, in the vacuum of space. Um, it's not necessarily so true in airspace, right? Um, but something that we don't know could have a severe impact on pilots and their flight plan and all of that, um, which then could really uh, wreak havoc on all of all of the United States airspace. Um, and so being able to understand and identify what those are phenomena are um, will help de-risk the, the air flight safety the, in the national airspace. Um, question seven. What current reporting protocols and air traffic management data acquisition systems can be modified to acquire additional data on past and future UAPs? Um, we've heard a lot of the reporting structures. It was talked about earlier today. Um, those probably can be adapted and, and improved, and it's up to us in discussion as the panel on what those recommendations might be. Um, question eight, and I'll get off stage. What potential enhancements to the future air traffic management development efforts can be recommended to acquire data concerning future reported UAPs to assist in the effort to better understand the nature and origins of the UAPs? Um, the potential enhancements, uh, automatic filtering of the knowns has come up as a talking point. Um, these are uh, specific really to acquiring data, um, the tuning of those sensor platforms, the multimodal spectrum collection, um, and being able to kind of timestamp or geostamp each of those to, to collaborate um, the, the sightings. So I will leave the panel with that with time to continue discussion. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, Okay, great. Let me up to me. Uh, lead this from there. But before I open it up, I just wanted to restate Federica's answer to Mike for hay. If you know the properties of hay very well, and you can you go through your haystack and say. I don't know what this is, but it doesn't look like hay. You don't need to have a match filter looking for a needle in a haystack if you know hay very well. And who said ass couldn't speak the middle of uh, <laughs> Now, as a New York City resident, my impression is if you go through hay, with your, you don't want to do it with your hands. But I, I defer to you. On, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think AIM, yeah. So um, I want to, in the, the final minutes we have here before the public session, look to the future. I think a lot of us have looked at the data we have now with a sense of dissatisfaction and say, what data would you want and how would you collect it?
Uh, and just think about, you know, we don't need to design the detectors, but think about the characterization that we'd, we'd like, what wavelengths we'd like, and, you know, just to kind of throw that out as a uh, one way to think about uh, what we might want to recommend. Paul. So one thing that strikes me in that question is that I'm not totally certain that we've dedicated our time and effort to looking for anomalies. I think by default, there are some science communities that look for things like um, uh, the genesis of a hurricane or a harmful algal bloom in the ocean or you know something in interstellar <laughs> space. But I, I'm not sure we ever focused our interdisciplinary effort on that. And I think the question you ask is a really interesting one, part of our statement of task, right? But I'm not sure I can answer that mm -hmm. quite yet. That's how I feel about that one. Sure. Shelley Wright. Um, yeah, going along with uh, Dr. Bontempi's point there, we heard a lot from Arrow about specifics about the needle, one to four meters in size, zero to Mach 2. You can then look at NASA's assets, right, and look at its uh, spatial resolution, its spectral resolution, um, in particular, the frame rate to get, to, I'm going to get to your uh, question here, um, Dr. Spurgle. You can look at the current NASA assets and try to say which ones could find that needle, the ones that uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick put forward. That analysis has not been done. So one of my recommendations would be for NASA to convene a group and a task force to look at its current assets to calculate what current available data, current data, and current facilities could answer insight into that. Now, to get to your future question, looking at this, I see Walter, is um, frame rate. I see a really big issue with frame rate. So if you want to catch fast moving objects, you need to take quick images. If you want to get to these very small sizes and resolution, depending on altitude, where you're actual, you're taking your image from ground or space, uh, NASA will likely have to increase its frame rate into its detectors. I think short answer to what NASA's current assets would be able to see would be really big haystacks that are moving very slowly, which I think is the point that you're making. Um, but that doesn't mean that that data is not useful because if it's able to characterize the background extremely well, that gives you a better idea of what unusual looks like. Basically anything that you do that characterizes the background will contribute to an understanding. So we're going to have to cut this off now because we're now going to our uh, our public session, public comment session. So turn that over. Could you please show us the aliens already and quit all this nonsense lip service? Hello, everybody. Uh, I am Karen Fox with NASA's Office of Communications, and we are segueing into the public Q&A portion of this meeting. Uh, as a reminder, this is a FACA meeting that is a Federal Advisory Committee Act, and so we are under guidance which says that these meetings are public and that we take public uh, questions. Uh, we got hundreds and hundreds of questions. And I just want to take a moment to say thank you to everybody who, who submitted them. Uh, we're obviously not going to get to all of them today, but we are going to make attempts to answer some of them online. You can always check back to science.nasa.gov slash UAP, where over time we will make it clear where we're putting out some more of those answers. Uh, in the meantime, we did have to make some decisions. Uh, 
we stuck to questions that applied to this independent study and UAPs. There were a lot of questions about astrobiology and other subjects that we're not going to get to today. And also in an attempt to get to as many of the questions as possible, since so many of them were similar, we've, we've sort of bucketed them. Uh, and that is how we're going to try to address as many as possible. So I'm going to toss the questions to you and we'll, and we'll look to getting some answers for our, for our public questions. All right. So first set of questions um, are specifically about the, the data being used. So examples, what exactly are you incorporating into your report? What data are we using? What are some examples of data being used? Do we have multi-sensor data or of objects performing maneuvers that seem truly anomalous? Do we have photos, videos? What about having the NASA historian go through the NASA's historical records? Did you interview military or pilots for this study? So looking for some information about the kinds of data. I can toss to anyone. David looks like he's jumping yeah. in. Well, I think first and foremost, our goal here is really to create a roadmap, right? So really, um, you know, we have been informed by some of the events that are reported and we've had, uh, but we've certainly not done a complete historical study in, our, our, in an archive. And I think one of the things we've wanted to do was learn what kinds of events have been reported, learn about some of the ones that have been resolved, some of the ones that are unresolved, so we can best think about how in the future we can collect data so that we can get more robust answers. So that, I hope that that addressed that question. It does. Other, others have anything else they'd like to add? You guys are the space guys. Okay. You should have all the, all the answers here. I will here. keep going. Uh, another big question category was about transparency and about sharing information. And so examples in this category are, what is NASA hiding and where are you hiding it? Mm. How much has been shared publicly? Has NASA ever cut the live NASA TV feed away from something? Has NASA released all UAP evidence it has ever received? What about NASA astronauts? Do they have an NDA or clearance that does not allow them to speak about UAP sightings? <laughs> what are the science overlords hiding? Dan Evans. All right, I'll take a stab at that one. That one. I really want to assure the public and to double down on some remarks I made this morning that this agency is absolutely cast iron committed to openness and transparency and honesty. And that commitment also extends uh, to our live NASA TV feeds. They provide real-time footage from our various missions. Now, to my knowledge, NASA has never intentionally cut a live feed to hide anything, and that includes UAPs, of course. Um, sometimes there are interruptions Why? to our feeds, but that is simply because space is a complex place. There's a vast array of natural phenomena, human-made objects, and so forth. Um, but again, I wanted to reassure the public that we're absolutely committed to providing the public transparency and openness those are the hallmarks of NASA. That's why we're here today in public on TV, because we want the public to have the opportunity to see the process of this committee doing its work in public. It's only right. And where's the aliens? Follow up on what I what I said. I, I didn't mean to be to joke about it, but in my 20 years at NASA, no one, either officially 
or unofficially in my recollection have ever discussed or briefed us or had any kind of discussions about anything that would be considered a UAP or UFO or anything like that. And I'll ask you to stand for one second and state your name. I'll ask you to stand for one second and state your name just so everybody know okay. who was yeah. speaking. It's hard sorry, to see Scott in the back. Kelly. I'm just following up on, uh, on the, the question about if NASA astronauts ever signed an NDA or um, anything of that, uh, anything like that. Um, in my experience of being in the astronaut office for 20 years, there was never any formal or informal discussions at all about UAPs or UFOs or anyone reporting anything that would suggest something from, you know, beyond our planet. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, please. I just want to make a quick comment about the, the culture of science uh, in relation to this question. Uh, scientists uh, by nature are, are, are uh, at least intellectually sort of rebellious. It's, it's, it's in our nature to question authority, you know. Uh, uh, that's how you're a good scientist. You don't just take someone's word for it. You try to uh, discover the truth. And for that reason, uh, you know, this question about what are the science overlords hiding, that's sort of written in a facetious way. But I, I just want to emphasize that uh, th there's no way that all, that all scientists could be in on on, on on trying to hide something because it's just not in our nature. If somebody told me to try to hide something as a scientist, that would just increase my uh, desire to uh, to re to belay that order <laughs> and 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 to release it and i think that's true of of uh, our our community in general all right thank you so much i am going to go on to our third set of questions um which is has nasa been tracking earth's atmosphere or are we also studying bodies of water for for uap and i think that's a dan question a for question. nasa or oh yep yep oh. Here's the oceanographer. Um, uh, so, you know, my understanding is this is a completely independent study to assess, you know, what assets, what data, um, what science, what observations, platforms NASA has to potentially help evaluate and understand uh, UAP, right? We have, um, well, NASA has an earth science division and many scientists at many centers and many academics and other partners out there um, that study the earth as a system. Um, we do this from the unique vantage point of space and the atmosphere is part of that. Um, so uh, I think Dr. Kirkpatrick stated this morning that to his knowledge and I think to ours, there, there isn't anything that's been reported below the ocean surface, um, you know, and so I think part of what we've been talking about all day is, you know, what assets are out there to actually begin to um, identify data that could be useful in explaining any of these reports if and should they come in. So I think that's probably it, unless there's something else to add. All right, then, thank you. Moving on to our fourth general bucket of questions. Uh, what are you doing to solve the stigmatization surrounding the study of UAP? I can take that one. And say your name if you wouldn't mind first. Carolyn Toner, FAA. Um, 
I think the fact that NASA has called us together here as a panel to look into this, that NASA is hosting a public meeting, that we've heard, right, it clearly stated we're here to be transparent. I think that's the first step in trying to really normalize the study of UAPs. And I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier um, about the reporting, about how to make it credible. And we talked also about UAP um, in one of the earlier talks this morning of, of <laughs> the definition of VA, whether it was air, um, aerial or anomalous as the legislation now is. And really the distinction beyond UFOs, right? When we're looking at UAPs here, we're beyond just airplanes. We're, we're looking at all types of anomalous phenomena. Um, and so that's just a more inclusive term there. Yeah, still Michael. Um, just wanted to emphasize what uh, Carlin said, which is so accurate. I, I really consider it quite amazing that we're here having this discussion. NASA leadership deserves great kudos for this. And beyond, I think a recommendation that I'd like to make is that NASA participate in symposia, in panels, sponsor research. When you have the NASA logo on that sponsored research, on the discussion, it really helps normalize and push back against the stigma. I think NASA can leverage its excellent reputation, both domestically and abroad, to help push back on that stigma. I think it's important to do so, not just for science and discovery, but for national security. That we've all seen what's occurred with balloons from rival nations. We don't want this stigma to be a vulnerability that rival nations can take advantage of. Yes, Dan? Yeah. Thanks, Karen. Just a, a few additional points. Um, from you know, the agency perspective, we are, of course, taking a set of actions to effectively normalize the study of UAPs. And that involves collaborating across the government, encouraging an open dialogue, and promoting rigorous scientific inquiry. Um, let me turn to each of those in turn. So in terms of promoting a rigorous uh, scientific inquiry, the primary way we're doing this is by being truly rigorous and employing an evidence-based methodology in everything that we do. That is characteristic of scientific research. It's no accident that the people up on this stage are true experts in their respective fields, okay? So that is in turn gonna help us to legitimize UAP studies. Encouraging open dialogue. So by holding public meetings such as this one and having open conversations about findings, then we're helping to normalize discussions again. And that, that really goes arm in arm with our commitment to openness and transparency with the public. And then finally, in terms of collaborating across the government, we're working very closely with other government agencies, not least Sean's office, Aero, uh, to broaden the scope and the depth of our study. And I honestly believe that this collective interagency approach will lend credibility to the study of UAPs. And it's gonna demonstrate the seriousness with which we're approaching this issue. Thanks. Well, that uh, segues very nicely into what our next set of questions are, which is uh, who we are working with. So the question is, who else is NASA currently working with or do we want to work with to study UAP? And is NASA working with international partners? All right. Pete, do you want to do it? I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Okay. Um, as the questions tasked to this panel so kindly asked us, um, both in what other government agencies 
um, are collecting data, what data is available. NASA is partnering with them um, in, in many ways, as well as uh, national ha NASA has a, a wide commercial outreach um, and partnerships with understanding what data is available, um, as well as NASA NASA's founded on, on, well, not founded, but it, the core principles of, of NASA are with international partners. Um, so the information that our partners are, are gathering is, is typically available to NASA as well. So, Michael, yes, on all accounts. And I may just emphasize and add that NASA is singular, I believe, among government agencies and in its international outreach. Again, not to keep talking about the Artemis Accords, but you see countries like Saudi Arabia that we may not have a great relationship with as government right now. We have Saudi Arabia and Israel in the Accords family, so that NASA is unique in its scope and ability to reach out. I also think that we're entering a new era of commercial space transportation that is going from low Earth orbit out to cislunar space. And that is going to be the purview of the Department of Commerce, which is taking over space traffic management. So I think it's very important that NASA work with and support commerce as we go through that transition. Department of Defense is currently responsible for that. And I think that will help us not only to identify potential UAPs, but to assist in preventing contention, congestion, and eventually conflict. And I also want to note, in terms of space debris, debris in orbit right now, I believe, represents an existential threat to our very society, that we are getting very close to an event that could cause real problems for our ability to access satellites. And that's why I think there's great ancillary benefits to the conversation we're having today, that as we increase our capability to monitor orbit for UAPs, that data could also be very relevant as we look at near-Earth objects and other threats. And again, to just end on near-Earth objects, Apophis, for example, an asteroid, is going to come so close to Earth, it will be below geosynchronous satellites. So any effort to begin to catalog and do better in terms of understanding that environment is going to be terrific, and I hope NASA works with commerce and international agencies on Apophis and other missions. I think Federica had something to say. Yeah, yeah I just wanted to add that, um, you know, a lot of the things that we think we might recommend in terms of platforms to collect data that would be useful to study UAPs, you know, we recommend a multi-platform and multi-site. That would also mean likely ground-based as well as space-based facilities. Um, and this is being done already in astrophysics, co-observing the sky uh, from the ground and from space with different methodologies and different, um, different instruments to get a more comprehensive picture of what's normal and then detect what's anomalous. And um, about every 10 years, the scientific, the astrophysics community anyways, but many other branches uh, convene a panel of experts to see what things can be done to advance um, the, the field in the next decade. It's called the Decada Survey for us. And one of the recommendations this year was explicitly for agencies that do astrophysics to work together. So NSF, DOE and NASA to work together, share data, share facilities and instruments. So I think this is, um, you know, it, there's uh, a lot of um, fields will benefit from this, including the UAP studies. Oh, absolutely. Carlin Toner, I, I'd like to put an exclamation point on how well NASA is collaborating across the government. I can, I'm from the FAA and I can personally attest that, you know, FAA and NASA have a robust uh, 
engagement in transferring research um, into practice in the ATM system. I think on the commercial space side, we work well with NASA. And, and all of our agencies are in the whole of government approach, uh, supporting Arrow specifically on the UAP topic. And, and, you know, it really comes down to good government and how we deliver because we can each work our own mission space, but to cover the whole space, we need to collaborate together. And Dan? To put an exclamation point on Carlin's exclamation point. Uh, so I think it's important to say that, you know, we really do have a, a good relationship with the Automain Anomaly Resolution Office, Aero, Sean's office, um, and its previous or predecessor organization, the OAP Task Force. Uh, and we have really benefited from very fruitful collaborations uh, among those various entities. And quite frankly, as, as a taxpayer, one should expect nothing less than the government to be working effectively across different units together. It's only right. Um, that being said, it's also important to acknowledge what NASA's perspective is in this study uh, and to acknowledge that you know, the, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community have, have massively different equities about the study of UAP uh, and they have different interests. Ours is a purely scientific one. So, you know, we collaborate, we consult. It's a very good relationship. And I agree wholeheartedly with Carolyn that a whole of government approach is absolutely the right one to take. Great, thank you. I will uh, move on to our sixth bucket of questions, uh, which we had many on this topic. Uh, is there evidence that UAP were created from non-human intelligence? All right. Yes, please. I will take this one. Um, first and foremost, we are scientists and we follow the scientific process. And um, I hope that uh, the gathering here today uh, showed a little bit of a glimpse on how the scientific process works. Um, it's not a question that you can answer very quickly with yes or no, um, and uh, we follow the data, right? So um, as scientists, we follow the data, we formulate hypotheses, we test theories, we follow the scientific process. The role of this panel has been to create a roadmap and a framework for how all scientists that are interested in this phenomenon uh, can further study, can further collect data, can further um, formulate experiments, uh, again, hypotheses, can test different methods, maybe even innovate on the methodology side of things, uh, come up with new methods for how we can do basically science, but not just any kind of science, but the science of discovery and exploration, uh, which is basically in uh, the spirit uh, of NASA. Uh, so, just like Carl Sagan was saying, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, we cannot make that kind of extraordinary claims um, at all for any kind of big subjects in science, whether it's UAPs, whether it's biosignatures, whether it's technosignatures. This question of whether we are alone in the universe is probably one of the largest questions that we've had in our history of science, in our history of humanity. And it's not one that we can take lightly. And that's why we need so many scientists and multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary teams to work together and many organizations. Um, so it's a process, it's a roadmap, and we work collectively on this. And uh, 
We hope that within our lifetime, we will be able to answer this big question of whether we are alone or not, and also to better characterize this phenomenon, which is UAPs. I want to so supplement that excellent answer by noting that we have not seen the extraordinary evidence, right? I mean, in a sense, to give, you know, to make the claim that we see something that is evidence of, you know, uh, non-human intelligence would be would require extraordinary evidence, and we have not seen that. I think that's important to make clear. All right, then I will move on to our seventh set of questions. We received many questions about the budget that is being uh, dedicated to this. Uh, how large of a budget will NASA allocate? How large of a budget is NASA allocating? And how large of a budget will NASA allocate towards this the study of UAPs? Dan. Yeah, that's a Dan question. So there, there are two separate questions in there, which is what is the budget for this group, this team, and what is the budget going forward, I think. Now, the budget for this independent study team is, is very consistent with any other of our external review groups that we bring in to the science mission directorate on an annual basis. So, you know, we have maybe 100, 200 such groups entirely consistent with that. Also important to say going forward now that NASA has not established a program relative to UAP. And as a result, there's no associated programmatic funding. But this is how NASA works. Federal budgeting is, is a complex uh, journey, of course, and the way NASA, particularly NASA science, likes to work is we anticipate and wait recommendations from independent groups such as this one, and we need to wait on final recommendations, and, and then we'll make an assessment. So too early to say, but of course, that's all couched in the fact that federal budgeting is a very complex process, and we will always follow the law. All right, uh, we're making good time. We have uh, one more question that, that encompassed many of the ones we got, uh, which is, has NASA encountered any aliens or extraterrestrial life? What happens if the public comes across extraterrestrial life? What would NASA do if extraterrestrial life was discovered? What would NASA study or do if extraterrestrial life was discovered? Now. I think it's worth making a distinction that there, when we talk about extraterrestrial life, we do have a study within NASA of astrobiology, which is not intelligent life necessarily. And so I invite you as you answer this question to make clear the distinctions as you are talking um, uh, in terms of UAPs as well as uh, any astrobiology work that we do. I would start by saying one of NASA's big questions is, is there life out there? Right, and a lot of what NASA is doing in its exploration of the solar system and beyond is focused on searching for life in any form, extraterrestrial life. Um, I think one of the things we have learned in the past 20 years is planets are common. We knew, of course, about the planets in our solar system, but we now know there are lots of planets out there. Cool. So there are lots of potential environments for life and I think uh, one of the most fascinating questions is, do any of those planets host life? And that's uh, something that NASA is trying to address in a host of different ways, whether it's probes uh, that are landing on planets or designing missions that will look for signatures of life around other planets. So 
the search for life is a really important theme. We haven't found life beyond Earth yet, right? I mean, let's be clear about this. We haven't found it yet, but we're looking and we're looking for it in lots of different ways. And, you know, David was discussing techno signatures as one way that we can look both within our solar system and beyond. And there's, so there's a lot, a lot of different elements, I think, of this potential search. And, um, you know, just to go back to something Sonat was phrased in an earlier question, you know, is NASA hiding anything about this? No, this is actually what, you know, answering this question is one of the things that NASA as an agency is, is excited about. It's what something that lots of scientists working with NASA are excited about is, is this question of, uh, is there life out there? You know, and I think one of the things that makes this question of, are we alone such a central question, not just to the scientific community, it's a central question, I think, for the public. Um, I suspect there are more people watching this than the typical episode of NASA TV, right? And this is something where we will have, me you know, media coming to the press conference because these questions touch on something that I think is really a deep question for humanity is, are we alone in the universe? Uh, yeah, it just to uh, kind of echo what David said a bit. I mean, obviously this is something uh, we think a lot about in astrobiology. What, you know, what if we succeed? Um, and, uh, you know, we are very driven uh, to try to find uh, real evidence of extraterrestrial life. And um, we would be highly driven to share that if we found it, um, because everyone wants to show that they've been able to succeed in what they're trying to do. And, and you know, one perhaps illustrative example is to think about what happened when we came close, when NASA thought maybe they had discovered extraterrestrial life. And, and um, a big event actually in the history of astrobiology was in, in the 1990s when some scientists had thought that they had discovered fossils in a meteorite that came from Mars. Um, and what happens is you don't announce it immediately. You make sure that you try to make sure you're right because you don't, also don't want to have false alarms and announce something where, and then you go, oops, sorry, we were wrong. That was a mistaken analysis. But what happened was when the, when the scientists were sure they were right, then um, there was a big, um, in fact, presidential press conference with President Clinton and NASA, and it was a big public announcement. And um, that's what would happen. If we discovered something, we would try to make sure we were right, and then we would very proudly and loudly let the public know about it. Thanks. We have just one minute left, so I'll let you finish up. Yeah, thank you. Um, the only thing I wanted to add, I wouldn't at all liken it to um, alien or extraterrestrial life, but in astrobiology and exobiology, you know, there is the exploration of our planet as an analog for what might be found on other worlds, um, you know, and what, what is extreme cold, what is extreme heat, um, a volcano, a black smoker at the bottom of the ocean, what lives there and how is that even possible? And things we still discover throughout our ocean might look alien to a lot of people, right? Um, and we keep discovering new species of different things, whether they be microbes or algae or, you know, charismatic megafauna, whatever they are. Um, 
but there are synergies. Uh, I know there was an initiative years ago at NASA called Oceans Across the Solar System, and the idea was could our own Earth's ocean be used and the life within it as an analog for what might be discovered elsewhere? So I think that's an example of a potential synergy of interdisciplinary science, research, observations, et cetera, collection of data and information gathering that could be useful in the future. Thank you all so much. I will hand it back to David Spurgle, your chair. Wow, that stunk. That stunk. Want some more comments? So let me also just answer the one other piece of that question was, what do you do if you see something surprising? Right? Where do you report? And this is something where just to come back to something I mentioned in my opening remarks, the AARO is the our lead agency for UAPs. And while we've talked about origin, you know, life in this context, most UAPs, I think when, when one looks at the data in more detail, are going to turn out to be phenomenon we understand. We saw this with some of the balloons or our commercial jets. We saw those examples. Some UAPs, and we saw this with the Chinese balloon that flew over, is something an issue sometimes of national security. So we actually do want to encourage people just from that angle to report it. So, you know, uh, since uh, so before we'll transition to summary, but so what I answer on, the, on that question that, you know, to keep in mind that, um, you know, the AARO's role is to be the prime source for understanding those things. And what our charge is, is to think about what's NASA's role. And I think NASA, you know, and this is something, you know, we'll con I want to now go back to discussion. We didn't have that much time for it. Just to, th to come back to, you know, what we each, you know, what we see as NASA's role in this. Um, I think one role piece we've talked about is be uh, NASA can help remove the stigma. NASA can draw more of the scientific community in. And I think what NASA can help do is provide standards of high data quality. I think one of the things that um, many of us who've come, you know, not looked at this before, I certainly put myself in this group, was struck by the limited nature of the data, that many events had uh, insufficient data and that in order to get a better understanding, we will need to have you know high quality data, data where we understand its provenance, data from multiple sensors. And I think one of the things that, uh, you know, even from the same sensor, as we saw, you know, in Josh's analysis, you know, also in the event Sean showed us, when you can observe event over time and get velocity information, that gives you a lot of additional information. So we're gonna want things with high frame rate. We're gonna want things from multiple perspectives. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think those are all gonna be pieces of things that we wanna think about. Um, I think this is an opportunity um, for citizen science. I think if uh, we can come up with recommendations in our roadmap that point to ways in which we can collect it, people can collect data. I remain a big fan of these things. They do take over our lives too much, but they are um, 
fabulous data collectors of, and I don't know, there's something like three, four billion of them that are on the planet. And NASA, I think, has the prestige and visibility to develop uh, an app or work with companies to develop apps that could collect data in a uniform and centralized way um, that I think will, you know, most of the stuff that's collected is going to turn out to be commercial planes, balloons. Uh, when you have multiple cameras, you can eliminate some of the optical limitations of ghosting and those effects. Um, some of them will almost certainly be novel physical phenomena, right? I think it is, uh, we have learned a lot about our planet and how the universe works. There's a lot we don't know, right? I think, yeah, you know, as, as scientists, what is the most exciting thing is the surprises. And I think that there are things that continue to surprise us about our own planet. There's phenomena in our atmosphere and the ionosphere that we probably haven't seen yet, or perhaps we've seen and not noticed yet, right? And there's, I, I think, a, a long history in science when you look back, back and you realize that this in discovery had a pre-discovery. So people had seen something before and were missing it. And those pre-discoveries were not of note, be often because we had biases against seeing it, but often because there was limitations in data quality. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was taught is uh, when you have a question you don't know how to answer, you start by getting better data. And, uh, you know, I, uh, we're coming, you know, I get to do the summary and as the chair, I get to, you know, summarize a conclusion. And, um, we need better data would be my, my takeaway. And we need more uniform data. And since I'm so proud of my haystack, <laughs> we need to be able to understand what's in the haystack. And it's a lot more complicated than a haystack in a sense, right? Is, you know, it's got commercial planes, it's got, you know, drones. And, you know, I think uh, the number of drones out there is large and growing and will be a continual source of confusion. Um, we were charged to think about air safety. You know, understanding and characterizing, seeing what's going on with drones is also, I think, going to be an important air safety issue. Um, so we'll need to, uh, you know, to understand the unknown or to start to study the unknown. Uh, another important piece is always going to be characterizing the known really well. And... Um, you know, this is the part, I think, of a lot of science that seems dry and boring, but it's calibration and understanding the events you expect to see. Um, you know, in thinking about this area, uh, one of the, the groups of people that people talk to are particle physicists doing experiments at CERN, where they go through the effort of finding extremely rare events to find new particles. 
And in order to do that, you need to understand the standard predictions well. So I think another part of the whole story, and I know this is something ARO is working hard on in the context of military, it's like you've got to characterize what you, the known things are. You know, when you've got that F-35 flying past a balloon, what does it see? What does it see at sunset? What does it see at odd observing angles? And that characterizing the normal is an essential thing to do to understand what's out there. So let me conclude the session by thanking the panelists. It's been a pleasure learning from you. Thanking our uh, Sean and and our other invited speakers and our, our that we've had we've had for our, right. uh, some of our data collection sessions uh, we've learned a tremendous amount from you and also thank the public for their engagement I think we were all impressed by the the number and level and sophistication of the questions people sent in we tried to address as many as them that we could in the session uh, as you heard NASA uh, through science.nasa.gov will provide, there'll be some additional answers provided. I encourage you to go there. Uh, actually, as a non-NASA employee, I'll put in a little ad for science.nasa.gov. NASA does amazing things. And we're learning amazing things about the universe and our planet. And just encourage you to go there. And... Uh, continue to learn and continue to explore. So thank you all. Wow. Wow. Woo. Wow. Boy, that didn't really do anything, did it? Boy, that stunk. Stunk. Stink, stank, stunk. Like the the song in the Grinch, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Uh, yeah, that was that was nothing. I, I know it inspired me though. I'm, I'm inspired now. I'm inspired. The next podcast I'm doing that's going to have the word dum dum or dum dums, one or the other. The, the dum dums or dum dum. There are dum dums among us. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the dum dums walk among us. I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be something with the word dum dum in it. Maybe dum dums galore. I don't know. Something to that effect. But, uh, yeah, there was this. We, we, we didn't get anything. The only good thing about this is the fact that, again, it's a government agency like NASA talking about it. Other than that, we didn't get anything out of it. Um, it's, I don't know what to say about it other than it was boring. Uh, these people obviously don't have any, I, I, I find it hard to believe. You have this one guy that's with NASA, says he's with NASA for 20 years and he's never heard anyone talk about UFOs. They never saw anything. I, 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 I find that hard to believe. I mean, for one thing, you would think that anybody who who gets a job at NASA, who goes to NASA, who becomes an astronaut or whatever, you would think that uh, that these people would be uh, very interested in this in this subject and UFOs. And here's some guy oh, I worked there for 20 years. Nobody ever talks about UFOs. Don't even no nobody ever said they saw one. It's like it doesn't mean anything to them. Uh, I mean, yeah, of course, NASA is more than just it's about exploring space it's about you know trying to go as far as we can i mean and that's great and everything but i mean there's more to it than just that uh i mean you you would think that anybody who goes to nasa has also has an interest in this and uh obviously i don't know 
to me, that this whole thing was, for one thing, it was boring. It seems like all of these people, they see either they're uneducated on this subject or you know, totally, completely. Uh, I mean, there's they're, they're going by the, still, still, still towing the Carl Sagan line that though, extraordinary evidence requires, you know, or extraordinary, you know, it's all nonsense. But there was a couple of comments here I want to read from Rob Heatherly that was made during the chat that I thought was uh, interesting. I, he says, uh, this panel's disingenuous demeanor is too obvious. It's like performing the first take from a new script. This narrative won't age well. The panel doesn't realize this will negatively impact their careers. And then later on, he also made another comment said that he agrees about that they are limited. People working for NASA are limited by the uh, amount of data uh, that they are provided. Of course, there's no way that uh, the secret control group provides NASA with uh, all the data that they have, right? Uh, so they are limited, but he, but Rob also points out, but also, and especially what narrative confinements they are prescribed. Yeah. And so, and then uh, Lord Humongous made a comment saying, what if uh, the panel is all aliens convincing us there are no aliens? <laughs> That's what it felt like, didn't it? Uh, and then uh, Rob had another comment here. It says, don't, some don't have a clue of the facts. Others on the panel do, but instructed to not move the needle from zero to mundane explanations for everything. Yeah. I think that some people on that panel, obviously, they're holding back. They would have to. I mean, you can't. all of those people on that panel can't be completely ignorant of the, the history of UFOs, right? I mean, how could they be? I mean, if you're someone in, who works for NASA, you must obviously have an interest in space, and obviously you got to have a few books on the bookshelf about UFOs and aliens. I'm sure some of those, at least a couple of them, would have to have that. These people are completely oblivious to that. Uh, you know, you would think that, like, when some of these questions are posed, uh, you know, they they could actually make a statement like that, what, but they won't do that. They won't go there. They won't say something like. Uh, well, we know people out there say they've been abducted by aliens. Some people out there see have seen craft close up that make no sound, right? Some people have saw beings come out of craft, landed craft. Oh, they could they could acknowledge that kind of stuff, but they didn't. They don't acknowledge that stuff. Again, that's the fringe. That's still the fringe. And how, how about earlier though? In the, in the first part of that was when Kirkpatrick made the statement from Arrow makes the statement that uh, uh, that that there's uh, how did he put it? He, he, he basically said that it, the st stigma is created by the people who believe in the subject. So the things that people like we, like I say, people like you say, right? The people like like us, right, out there who or who who, who are interested in the subject and want answers by 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 stating our 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 beliefs and our experiences and uh, our knowledge from uh, various uh, books that have been put together over years. Because we have that, that that creates a stigma. And because we criticize uh, what the fact that he's not pointing out the fact that uh, these some of these uh, like it was talked about, we, we learned after that, for instance, that some of these sites were uh, whistleblowers have been telling Congress and Arrow that actual locations where technology is kept, non-human uh, technology is being uh, looked at. But but see that doesn't constitute evidence as far as he's concerned. Even though he had a, people like uh, Robert Solis test uh, talk to Arrow, it doesn't matter. None of these people, witnesses who uh, talk about things that obviously had to be extraterrestrial or at least non-human. It's just oh man, it was terrible.
It was it, it was it was tough to sit through. Actually, the second half was a little bit more entertaining. I would say the second part where they came back after their lunch was a little bit more entertaining than that first part. The first part was was god awful. I mean, this was god awful too. But again, it, it's a slap in the face. I mean, it's like we all know what's going on and everything. But it's I don't know. Is this the slow the slow disclosure to get the people out the, the slowly bring us along, or is it just a pacifier? Or I mean, what? To, to keep us all oh at least they're talking about it you know is that what it is i don't know who knows but it what that was we really didn't get anything out of it i mean again the only good thing is nasa's talking about ufos in a public forum the there's they're they're, they're going to try to study it and 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 look at objects out in space and flying around and and, and make determinations and they're going to use certain kinds of technology to do to accomplish that okay that's great uh I don't know. So we're, uh, yeah, like Rob Heatherly says, NASA is an excellent organization. The efficiency is limited by their top leadership and their leaders. Yeah, Th those guys, those people have, the people in NASA, some of those people have most certainly, <laughs> their hands are tied behind their backs, some of them. They have to be. There's just no question about it. I mean, over the decades, you've heard different stories from astronauts, right? From astronauts, the, the mouths of astronauts. They said directly that, hey, we saw UFOs. We talk about it. There's been lots of re there's other reports you read about where objects are seen during uh, flights in space, into space. But that stuff gets covered up because somebody above NASA is telling them, hey, you can't let the public know about that. That needs to be uh, uh, removed. That needs to be redacted, you know, from any... Uh, official uh, uh document you know or or video or film or whatever it's just yeah so yeah that was a joke that was a joke now i, I mean it just feels like uh it feels like we're just being true i mean the, we, we here's here's the the big issue i have we, we we have people that we 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 put in charge and then they they fill all these government offices like NASA, like the, you know all the places, all the offices in the Pentagon, you know, and then they obtain information about something that's an incredible discovery, and and we're still playing this stupid game. We're playing this dumb game. It all boils down to that in the end. Like all of this stuff that you're seeing today, right? It's a farce, really. In the bottom, the bottom line is it's a farce. I mean, we should, we're, we're actually beyond that behind the scenes. I, the one thing is probably, this is probably true. We, we probably don't, the, the Pentagon, the secret control group, they don't probably have, they, they probably don't have all the answers, right? They probably just don't. And, and, and so it's, it's good that in a way that scientists and different scientific organizations and NASA are actually finally starting to look at this after all this time. I think that they were uh, being forced. It seems to me that because of the cover up, because of the secret control group was in the, uh, in the shadows trying to reverse engineer this stuff for all these, all these years. And, and, you know, that, and plus they didn't want to tell the public the truth because they're afraid of how the react, what the reaction might cause. Right. So it, this is basically hand uh, put, put the, the science, the, the the scientific world's hands behind their back. They tied their hands behind their back for all this time. And 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 so now uh, so so now they're just finally going to get caught up to speed. But they're acting like they acted like when you hear these people talking about this subject, that's all they, they sound like they're completely oblivious to any of the stuff that's already out there. That's the the alien encounters that people have had all the stories that have come up over all, all these years stuff that astronauts have talked about like Gordon Cooper uh 
Um, Edgar Mitchell. I mean, none of that stuff is was brought up. Those names weren't even brought up brought up today. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, it was very disappointing. Uh, it was the listen to. Like I said, I think the only good thing is is that you have an agency like NASA talking, having a public meeting. Outside of that, it was pretty much worthless. Other other than to waste people's times, to waste our times to sit there listening to it. But at least again, uh, it's something. Uh, I just wish I just wish the government would finally just be truthful about this. Uh, of course, I'm sure that the secret control group doesn't have all the answers, right? And and it's going to take NASA and other scientific uh, organizations uh, time to, to, to try to catch up to what the, gov the government has, the secret control group has hidden, right? But at the same time, uh, why not just let it all out here? Let, let us know the whole truth rather than playing this stupid game because a lot of us out there already know that something's going on and, and this is just like stringing us along and it just again it's like it's like a pacifier get like that you would hand to a baby um uh, anyway uh, i'm gonna end this i i pre i really want to say i appreciate all the comments i mean i i'm laughing my head off a lot of, a lot of the comments that people were providing in the chat during this whole thing uh that was a lot of fun um mr gray owl really had me chuckling a lot today thank you very much i, I really appreciate it uh for all the people that were here today and uh like i said i guess next time i'm gonna have to you know this this has inspired me to do one thing and that is to uh talk about uh, i guess the fact that there are people among us that are completely oblivious uh, to this to this to the to actually to the reality that there's something here i mean they're just completely oblivious to it uh and they just won't they, they just don't even consider it I, I think a couple of those people sitting in that group today with NASA, I think that's some of them might have been dumb dumbs. Not all of them. I think some of them are just, you know, playing along, right? But uh, yeah, it, it just it's upsetting to see that. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot, everybody, for joining me today. Until next time.